You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. July 4th weekend, um, I thought it was appropriate uh, to have someone speak in halacha, but also with an understanding of uh, the democratic principles of our country and how they actually play out in a way that um, are informed by what we know from our halachic understanding, and there's similarities and differences. And there's also, of course, uh, the ideas of Dina de Malchusa, and it, the fact that it happens here, the subject that Rabbi uh, Arya Clapper, who has graciously agreed to speak, um, uh, Arya is the, is the dean of the Center for Modern Total Leadership, but the subject he wants to speak about is also, I think, very connected to our Parsha here in Chutzlor, it's anyway, or in the Golas Parsha's Korach, um, where we can flesh out the ideas of the necessity of debate, fealty to a overriding constitution, uh, the underpinnings of uh, aforesaid Dini de Malchusa, and also equal protection of the law. Rabbi Clapper, um, it is, uh, again, a, an honor and uh, especially, I know that uh, you have a book that is being published, I think, Declarations of the Halacha System and Its Values, uh, a work that I know uh, was done uh, with great care and, and uh, accuracy uh, with your usual, um, really, uh, hone-in scholarship towards it. And I'm sure it's a book that is going to uh, make a difference for many people who are seriously interested. goal in the share today. Uh, I really wanted to connect, we're going to connect three different things. One is to talk just a little bit about how we relate to Masa Korach in light of democratic principles, because people often cite Korach as the anti-democratic principle, that we uh, that Korach thinks but we believe in, in hierarchy, and, that, and there certainly is a truth to that, but I want to present one Makor that at least complicates that. We're going to move from that makor to a discussion about the way in which um, halacha regulates employer-employee relationships, uh, because we'll see that the meshechachma we're going to talk about in the context of Parshas Korach builds something, right? Builds off halachic notions of employer-employee relationships, builds a whole conception of how human beings should relate to each other in society. Um, we'll show how the way in which he builds it can be complicated by seeing it in terms of two different American traditions, which I have, uh, you know, for me's sake, called Jefferson and FDR. And then I want to show how the underlying principles of that um, relate to an, uh, right, to the conception of the 14th Amendment that really, which is rooted in the Declaration of Independence, the notion of equality under the law. Um, and I want, to, I want to show how that value of equality under the law becomes part of halakha, and then we can complicate that by saying, but does, in what way does it become part of the halakha when we acknowledge that, in, uh, that both in American history and halakha, there are at least two different ways of understanding how that should be implemented. So that's a very, very ambitious agenda for a 45-minute uh, year or so, but so I hope you'll uh, hang on to your uh, intellectual hats as we start flying. Uh, okay, I'm going to share my screen now, and um, let's, take a look, let's take a look at the first Makor, uh, which I'm open is going to be a very interesting and Interesting Makor in, uh, in what it does to Parshas Korach. What it does to Parshas Korach is implicit, so you have to pay close attention. This is the Meshachach, but not on this week's Parsha. It's Meshachach, but several weeks ago, dealing with the Parsha of Pesach Sheni. And what he says, in, he's, talking about what, um, he's talking about what the meaning of the Korban Pesach is, and why there was a Korban Pesach Sheni in this particular case, and why there's a Korban Pesach at all. And here, in the midst of his discussion of what, why a Korban Pesach is all he says the following. One of the things the Korban Pesach does is, Af mashrish b'leiv Yisrael kikulam shavim v'am kadosh l'ashem elokav. One of the Korban Pesach roots in the, uh, the heart of all Israel, kikulam shavim, that they are all equal, v'am kadosh l'ashem elokav, and they are all a, um, a holy people to God. And that's an astonishing thing because it's pretty clear here that the Mechur Hachma is saying that the message of the Korban Pesach is roughly parallel to the message of Korach, right? There's no way to avoid saying that Kilam Shavim Bam Kadosh Lashem Elokav. 
is a, a paraphrase of Kichaloida Kulam Kidoshim in the context of a uh, or in the context of a, a claim that some people were un, were uh, unjustifiably taking power over others. Um, now the Meshulach qualifies this. He says the Chol Adam Elokit. When all men are created equal means that all human beings are created equal. Whatever you want to you know, expand the franchise means that everybody is worthy of uh, or capable of entering into divine providence. And then he says something even more astonishing, which makes it clear how he is um, relating this to Korach. What does he mean by chazev? The gifts to the um, the gifts of the Kohanim, and he's telling you the Korban Pesach has no gifts to the Kohanim in order to oppose the normal hierarchy, uh, right? To teach you something about the uh, the failure the the failure to grasp human equality that is implicit in the normal hierarchy of uh, of of Kohanim, and he says further umore, and so therefore the Korban Pesach, in its demonstration that everyone is equal, in fact, kulam koeda kulam kedoshim. And that applies even to go on, which is exactly what Korach is rebelling against. And so Garden Pesach also thereby shows that the will of God is to eliminate any subordination, any shibud of one person over another. Right? Because the Basuk in the says, Ma'avadim, as opposed to the avadim of other human beings, and Meshachachma treats this as a fundamental desire of God. And notice that his rhetoric shifts away even from Bnei Israel here. And here he talks about human beings. And right, everybody is free. And because God's will is that human beings should not in any way be subordinated, should not serve another human being. So the Meshach says that the Rambam's understanding of the Vodazara, which is right, that when human beings worship intermediaries, that God does not desire human beings to be under any intermediary. He wants right, human beings to relate directly to him because that, right, because if he had set up a hierarchy in heaven and human beings were subordinated to whatever creature, you know, creatures, the metaphysical creatures you believe they, they could be, or to any other human being, then, um, right, then that would, that, right, that, that would lead to Avodah which is part of the same problem as human beings serving each other. Okay, now this is a, um, this, right, this, this Meshachachma is the equivalent of the rhetorical flourish. Uh, all men are created equal, uh, right? It sets out an ideal, and we know that that ideal is not going to be carried out fully in practice. That the um, right that the, in fact the Torah at least allows for and possibly uh, encourages even mandates the concept of a Jewish melech. In fact, in Parsha Korach, the Meshul Chachma will tell you that there is some kind of intrinsic um, natural aspect to Shevet Levi that makes them fit for the Kuna. And one should not think, right, that the Shevet Levi earned the Kuna because of some kind of virtuous act that's because of an intrinsic capacity. Um, so we have to balance the rhetoric Meshachachma uses here uh, with all the right, with all the rest of Halakha, which sometimes you know, accepts the reality of subordination and even endorses it. And yet I think that to understand Halakha, uh, the way that Meshachachma does, we have to acknowledge that he, here he actually takes this rhetoric with enormous seriousness he take right. He builds out the symbolism of the Korban Pesach, um, right? Not this is not a, a, a devil's advocate thing. It's right, a, right. He uses the Korban Pesach essentially to endorse the underlying, um, the underlying claim of Korach and his rhetoric that we are against subordination. Okay, right. And he uses his model of that is the pasuk vavadaihem below avadim lavadim, right? That um, Jews are supposed to be servants of God alone. And not servants of other, and not servants of other servants. So that is a right. That's a, um, a halachic um, framing, because there is a um, right. There's there's right. There's a drasha that shows up among other places on uh, Gemara above Mithia, um Yudam and Aleph. Right. That's where the Gemara quotes this drasha of um, below avadim. Uh, right. Interesting question. Not our purpose. Whether the drasha is from the Kilibe Shalavadim, from Avadaihem, or from the the um, the uh, um, the repetition, the, superflu uh, the superfluousness. 
Okay, how do we understand the uh, the drush of Kliyav Yisrael Avadim Avadaihem Lamase? Right, because Lamase Kliyav Yisrael Avadim Avadaihem is not a pasuk that is speaking about political order. It's not talking about the relationship of Jews to government officials or the way in which we should set up a government official. It's dealing with the context of um, of labor relations. So, in the context of the Gemara in uh, in Bava Messiah. Um, there's a Machloket Rashi in Tosfot, and I want to read the Gemara the way I believe that Tosfot does. Gemara says the following. Rav Nachman and Rav Chitza, both of them said that if you acquire a lost object for, a, uh, for somebody else, right, you attempt to pick up a lost object for somebody else, then your friend, um, right, you can't, you can't succeed in doing that. We don't allow you to do that. Why not? Because we view the lost object as potentially the property of uh, all, of everyone in the Jewish people, and so by picking up the lost object for one person, you are causing everybody else in um, in the Jewish community to incur an opportunity cost. And we don't allow imp, um, implicit, we don't allow constructive agency. When you make yourself someone's agent without their authorization, we don't allow that. Uh, we don't allow you to choose to serve one person's interest at the expense of other people unless you are explicitly authorized. Okay, then Rava challenges this and says, Rava says, how can you claim that so? Because there is an example of a, of somebody it was explicit. Um, we have a bright that says explicitly that the um, that you can pick up at least one kind of person can pick up a lost object for a third party. So what's the example, right? So it says the work, the findings of, of somebody who's working while on the job belong to themselves. What is that true? If the balabayit said to them, adori but if the balabayit just said to them, work with me today, so then. Uh, all the things found by the worker belong to the um, belong to the employer. Um, and Rava says, well, that proves that third parties can pick up objects um, for somebody else because this employee can. So that problem, um, that pro- right, that pro- right, that pro- that problem is obviously an employer can employer employee relationship is not one which you choose to act as somebody else for somebody else. It's in which you are explicitly authorized. And so there's a, a dialogue of mutual incomprehension here between Rava and Rav Nachman, where Rav Nachman says, what are you talking about? Right, Shani Poel, the Adokia Balabaitu, right? The employee is the extension of the employer's hands. That has nothing to do with third parties. And then Rava, right, and then Rava says to him, that's, that's, how can you claim that the Poel is an extension of the Balabayas? He can always back out of the contract. And Rav Nachman says, so what? He can back out of the contract, but he hasn't backed out of the contract. So he's just an extension of the employer. And it's like a dialogue, it's a dialogue of incomprehension. And then um, Rav Nachman adds something else. He says, Ki hadarbe, but when he backs out, tamachrinahu, that has nothing to do with our question of what the relationship between the employer and the employee is. That's because of So that's also like, who needs that, right? right? Rav Nachman explained, every, Rav Nachman answered Rav's question beautifully. He said, right, look, you can tell me he can back out, but he hasn't backed out, So we, right? So while he is an employee, He's an extension of the Balabayas. That's a really weird, uh, really weird structured sugya. Uh, I want to point out uh, that Tosfos has just an astonishing line at the end of it. Tosfos says, nearly, it seems to me nonetheless, that nonetheless, mutara dam haskir atmo. Despite this sugya, it is legal for people to hire themselves out as employees. Where Tosfos said, it sounds like Tosfos believes that the simple reading of the sugya, which we, right at the end, he says, well, and I don't think you have to go that far, but the simple reading of the sugya says, um, says, right, says, uh, says Tosfos, is that any, um, is that any, um, empl- any, any employment is, in, right, is the kind of subordination of one person to another that is, um, that is against the spirit of Torah. I saw a question in the chat, does this apply to faceless corporations? And the answer I think is yes, because the, right, especially the way the Meshach Huffman set it up for us, the problem is not the subordination to another human being. The problem is any kind of diminution of human autonomy. Right? So God doesn't allow human beings to be subordinate to celestial creatures either, Kalbachomer, to non-celestial, uh, non-celestial corporations. And we'll have to figure out, right? Obviously that's where we're going to be going at the very end is to figure out how does this relate to subordination to a government? Um, but the drift of the sugya 
is that Kilib um, Yisrael Avadim goes so far as to, right, in principle, as to ban employment. And if you read it that way, right, so Tosa says it's mutter. If you read it that way, I think the proper way to read this sugya, according to Tosa, is as follows. Um, yad, yad po'el ki yad balabayitu, right, is the same language we use for yad evit ki yad, ki yad rabo. It's a claim that the relationship between employees and employers is the same as the relationship of an evid to a to an adon, and that we really strongly object to. The question is, what does it take to avoid that? So Rav Nachman says at the end, uh, all that right, what it, all it takes is you're not in evidivri, which means that you have a realistic um, you have a realistic prospect of ending the contract on your own. And so long as you can end the contract on your own, so long as you can so long as you can end the contract in midday. You're not an Evid, and Kilibi Yisrael is fine with that. All we need to avoid being an Evid is you have to be free to leave. If you, any voluntary relationship is not Avdiv. And we could argue, so how does the Torah permit even Evid Ivri? And the answer is because even an Evid Ivri, in principle, can buy their way out of a contract. Um, it's just they're paid in advance. And because they're paid in advance, they can't, um, right, they, in practice, it's, right, they were paid in advance because they're desperate for money. According to the Ramam, it's usher to sell yourself unless you have absolutely no other means of obtaining uh, support. So in practice, an Ebed Ivri is an Ebed because they don't really have the option of leaving because they're not allowed to leave without, uh, without, without uh, paying back their initial price. There's a Machloket Achronim about whether uh, somebody who hasn't signed the contract, specifically calling themselves an Ebed Ivri, is allowed to, uh, to leave a contract if they were paid in advance and can't repay it. Um, but let's, let's leave that issue aside for now. So that's Rav Nachman's position. But along the way, we learn, especially according to Rava, that there are different categories of employment. There's an employee, uh, right? Rava says, there's a, right, there's a, or the Bright Day here says, there's an employee who is told to do, right, he's hired to do whatever the employer says. And that person, um, right, um, Rava thinks is, right, is, is um, enough of an Eved that they can acquire things for somebody else. But, um, Somebody who's somebody who's instructed, right? Who gets to choose their own work, right? They're hired to do a specific task. So that person, nobody thinks that they can acquire lost things for a third party because they're not an evid. So I think that out of this sugi, you get a hierarchy, uh, which I think has enormous ethical significance for the way in which halacha and Jews should think about um, should think about employment law. The first principle is that the the less the less possible it is for you to leave the job on your own the more like the kind of avdus the Torah dislikes it is. And that is implications, right? I used to give this year um, to argue that we had to get rid of employer-based healthcare because employer-based healthcare is a way of keeping people um, in a job that they don't want to be in. Um, and we could, right? And I think that there's lots of practical discussion to talk about how to balance this with the legitimate interest of employees, of, of employers in having their workers promise, commit to staying um, because they, so that they invest in training them, so employees also have an interest in them, how you deal with issues like vested pensions, all those sorts of things like that. But the underlying moral principle is that halakha wants people to be free to work for themselves as opposed to others. Um, interesting about whether that means halakha wants people to be free to work for themselves as opposed to others, or halakha wants them to be free to choose whom to work for. All right, some people think that this, some achronim think that this principle only applies if you're leaving to be self-employed, and other people think it, it implies applies even if you are uh, leaving for another job. And there's another acronym about um, what happens if you're leaving not because you dislike the work conditions, but because you want more money. Is that also the kind of freedom that the uh, that the Torah endorses? Right. Those are all uh, right. Those are all interesting uh, interesting questions, but tangential to us. And the second principle is that even within your job, um, right? Halacha sees you as less a slave and therefore less in violation. Of the principle of the more autonomy you have about your task. So we should try, you know, as a as a community, right? Our goal is, to, right, and individually, our goal is to uh, try and give everyone the option of leaving employment uh, at will, and of choosing their and of choosing their tasks uh, within their right within their existing employment. And all that has to be, you know, balanced with a plausible uh, economic regime. Uh, but I will say that um, you know, one of the uh, the um, the ironies here is that uh, Jewish institutions are often the least in consonance with this. 
um, when I worked for day schools, um, the, the standard day school teacher contract, and I'm told is still the case in many places, is that teachers are required to teach X number of periods and you know, handle X administrative jobs and do whatever else the administrators may tell them to do without restriction. Uh, and I objected because I thought that's a slavery contract, um, right? That you know, really, really. It, um, and then, and then, if you have schools in addition where the, where they don't pay the faculty on time, then you can't leave because you're afraid they won't pay you if you leave now, even for the work you've already done. Um, so too often, Jewish institutions are not uh, living up to this premise, and I think that it would be worthwhile to uh, worthwhile to um, to try and encourage that. Okay, that's one way of reading but um, Rashi doesn't read it that way at all. And I want to point out that there, the Rishalmi offers more variability in understanding what the principle of Kilibin Israel Avadim means. Uh, and I think that we can look at that variation and yet still say, oh, the Meshach Chachma sets Kilibin Israel Avadim up as a fundamental principle of the way in which human beings relate to each other. But maybe the Gemara in Dovmetsia is not controlling the, the, the Pasuk, Kilibin Israel Avadim, and the Drasha from. Avadai, the law of right, and not human avadim plays out, but it can be understood in multiple ways. So there's a machlokin in Rav and Rav Yochanan um, about the principle poel yacholach zorba b'chatsi hayom, in which the um, the, Gemara, the Yerushalmi says that Rav says kibbutz shavadim means ein Israel konin zeitzeh. Ein Israel konin zeitzeh, as we're going to understand that to mean. Well, let's wait one second. Rav Yochanan says no evet ivri he matnisit. So that's really puzzling, right? How can how could Rav Yochanan claim that this principle is evidently? The whole point is we're trying to stop you from being evidently, right? So that's really puzzling. The Gemara says enough gemina is that according to Rav, whether right, it's not just that employers can, uh, not just that employers can leave at their, uh, at their, at their, um, at their. Uh, at their at at will, but employee, but I'm sorry, not employees can leave at will, but employers can leave at will um, just as well, um, right? Which means any means that there simply are no binding employment contracts in Judaism. And that's the way Rav understand the Rav understands the the Everybody has to be free, and that has massive massive economic um, implications if all contracts are by definition at will and it may not be realistic. Um, Rabbi Yochanan, on the other hand, says, Rabbi Yochanan says that a worker can um, withdraw, but employers are bound by contracts. How does that come from Ebed Ivri Himadnitin? So what, what emerges is that an Ebed Ivri uh, can, right, can buy their way out of the contract, but the Adon of an Ebed Ivri cannot, um, right, cannot say, um, right, I, right, I um, simply give up my responsibilities. Uh, right, they, can't, they certainly can't demand their money back. And probably this is also but I like the position that the uh, an employer doesn't even have the option of giving up their responsibilities to support the Ebed Ivri's family. Right? That an Ebed Ivri contract is binding on the employer, but not on, on the employee. And Rabbi Yochan says, you know what we need to do when we say that the way in which that protects employees is not by saying our whole job is to protect the employees from being slaves. And then once they have their freedom, they do whatever they want. Rabbi Yochan says we have to do, we have to recognize that all employment, to some extent, is a situation of inequality, and because of the situation of inequality, therefore we have to intervene to protect the employee, just like we protect an um, an ebedivri. And the halacha actually follows what I think is an even stronger position, which is that of the Marami Ruttenberg. Ruttenberg says that an ebedivri has fewer protections than an employee. Because he was over al the Ebed Ivri by selling himself was over al Kilibin Israel Avadim Lavadim Lavadim. But a Poel who has not violated Kilibin Israel gets all the protections of an Ebed Ivri plus. Right? So the Marami Ruttenberg has a right, it, right, allows for very strong halachic intervention to support the employee against the, uh, against the employer. Um, for example, dealing with questions of what happens if the employee is sick, um, right? What happens if there are inflation, if, if inflation changes the changes the cost of labor between the time that the employee committed and the time later, all, all sorts of issues, the Maram says that consistently we give employees all the advantages against employers, Yad Poel Aloyona, including but not limited to those of an Evid of an Evid Ivri. 
Now that I think, right, the Marami Rutenberg is very explicitly following Rabbi Yochanan, um, right, that Evid Ivri is a minimum standard of protection for employees, as opposed to Rav, who says that uh, all we do is protect you from being held to specific performance. All we do is to make sure that, right, to make sure that nobody can enslave you and that you can leave the contract. But in practice, of course, um, Rav's contract, Rav's uh, position leaves employees very vulnerable. Many people have to take jobs that they would much rather not take because of economics. Uh, they may be they may be um, forced by specific positions of economic inequality, unfair unfair manipulations of the market, and the fundamental notion that if you have an, a non-unionized labor force, so you're negotiating as an individual against the corporation, which is an aggregate of capital, so there's going to be an enormous um, enormous power imbalance, and therefore um, employees will be forced to. Uh, accept contracts that are not truly reflective of their value of free will. So this, I want to argue, right, this, this vision, these two visions of what it means not to be an Evid are fundamentally the Makloket in the United States Supreme Court, or the shift United States Supreme Court between the laissez-faire era uh, from the late, the late 1890s um, until the middle of the New Deal, New Deal as opposed to the, the, the New Deal era, uh, and the shift between the laissez-faire era and the New Deal era was famously called the switch in time that saved nine, right? Where, where uh, one justice switched so that, I think it was Chief Justice Hughes, that, so that, um, the, and would stop overruling all the New Deal things, uh, right? That's, that's fundamentally the same question. The, um, the, laissez-faire, the laissez-faire people wrote that there is no reasonable ground for interfering with the liberty of person or the right of free contract by determining the hours of labor, right? What they said was that what it means to be free is to have the right to enter into obligations. If, right, if the government restricts your capacity to enter into contracts, then you're not really free. You're subordinate to the government. And our job is just to create a, um, an equal legal playing field. And if the equal legal playing field nonetheless means that people have economic advantages uh, that caught, right, or, right, or power advantages in other ways that leads some some sides to be uh, right to come with what you know in a way which an objective observer might think um, well one side has the advantage over the other. That's not our issue. Our issue is right. Our issue is just to protect the freedom under the law, and that I think is the position of Rav. Right? All right, we ban slavery, but anything short of slavery, we right we uphold freedom of contract, as opposed to the New Deal, which said that um, right what it, right the New Deal, which which understood itself right the the justice understood themselves as going back to the pre laissez faire era uh, to an 1897 case, uh, right? We said we pointed out the inequality in the footing of the parties. Right? We said that if the if the negotiation starts off with people, even though they are legally equal, but they're economically unequal, they have different kinds of, of power. Then it is the job of government to intervene, and that I think is the position of um, the position of Rav Yochanan, that um, right that we uh, we acknowledge inherent inequalities. And therefore, in any negotiation between employees and employers, we have a thumb on the scale in favor of the employee because that's the way to get back to equality. Otherwise, we are just entrenching subordination. Now, this is a machloket seen Rav and Rav Yochanan, and then it's a machloket, um, right, which now we showed it in the uh, machloket in U.S. history in the Supreme Court. Um, but I also want to point out is that it's also a machloket achronim, very contemporary Haredi Dayan. Uh, Shalom, I believe, Rav Avram um, Dov Levin, who was head of the Beit Din Lamanot in Yerushalayim. And on the other hand, um, the other hand, Rav Kook. Um, so we'll start with Rav Kook, right, who right, is writing this in the late 1890s, I believe. And so he's right in the right era of the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, he says, how can a person not have the power over himself to bind himself under the rubric of Ebed Ivri? Right, the Torah allows something called an Ebed Right, called an evidivri, and the Torah allows them called an evidivri, right? Then how can we ban halacha intervene with your freedom of contract? So Rav Cook says that uh, if the Torah permits the category of evidivri, therefore the Torah, right, the Torah permits every other contract so long as it is freely entered into. Whereas, uh, whereas um, Rav, uh, Rav Ramdav Levin said no. Right. Um, sometimes there's an inequality in the contract, and our job is to uh, our job is, in, is to intervene. And he, of course, quotes the uh, quotes the Maharal. Okay. So we have a um, 
So we have a machloket uh, just playing, playing it out. We have a machloket um, in uh, Amoraim in the um, in the uh, Yerushalmi uh, that happens to roughly parallel the machloket um, between in the two eras of the Supreme Court. And interestingly enough, during the let's say fair era of the Supreme Court, there is a rabbinic figure of Rav Cook, um, and that's what's always always talk of the dangers of you know, of being careful what you wish for in terms of modernity, because modernity, you know, the progressive position is often not, in one era, is often not perceived as progressive. Uh, later, uh, and Rav Cook is particularly problematic in that area as to what constitutes progressive. So Rav Cook adopts the full laissez-faire notion that um, when, the Torah says, when the Torah says that we want people to be free and equal, what it means is we want them to have absolute freedom of contract, even if their choice under freedom of contract is to bind themselves into a contract that fully resembles slavery. Um, whereas, um, whereas um, the Ram Dovlevin says that no, it's the job of government to intervene when contracts are uh, show unfair standing of one one party on the other. Okay, so I want to um, I want to connect this to one further idea, um, and the one further idea is Dina Malchusa Dina, and I wanted to to, to show you that um, there are. Uh, positions that I find very powerful in halacha that um, that connect the concept of equal protection of the laws, um, which again I'm rooting back in rooting back in Meshachachma, and I think that Meshachachma right connects equality with Kili Yisrael Abadim. It's against subordination, and so and subordination means that the law cannot entrench the power of one person over another. That's what 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 equal protection fundamentally comes to prevent the subordination of one person to another um, under the rubric of legal power. So that notion obviously shows up, um, it shows up many times in Torah as a principle among Jews. It's an ongoing, it's an ongoing um, principle. So I wanted to show you that um, two 20th century figures explicitly saw that as right, the, equal, the, the notion of equal protection as a fundamental notion of uh, Dina Malchut Adina. All right, one of them is Rav Chaim Regensburg, who was the Avbeitin of, uh, of Chicago. Um, right, so he wrote, We call Zenochachnu, Shaklal Gadolhu Bishpatim of Chukim Shabina, Shisarichliot Shivion Muchlat, Ben Kohatoshavim Ve Ezrachim. Right, that you have to, that there has to be absolute. Uh, equality amongst all the residents and uh, and uh, and citizens. He takes this not as a principle of halacha among Jews, but as a principle of political organization among human beings. All right, this is one of the. He says this is one of the essential characteristics of uh, of all uh, of all chok um, of all Okay, right, and a chok which lacks at the chok which lacks this characteristic is is not a just chok, a no chok tzedek. So that's an amazing claim, right? And he does it explicitly says that this is not a principle within halacha, but a principle about law. Okay, the same notion. Second person is um, Rabbi Ephraim Fischel Weinberger of Tel Aviv in a sefer called Samchut Hasibur Bivchirat on Sheha Memshal or Halacha. Right, so he writes the. He, write, he, write, he writes fundamentally the same thing, right? That Chok HaTorah Hu Neged Yitzirat Chumim Hafoyot Umamadim Shunim Balez Chuyot Yeter. The Torah is against the creation of boundaries, uh, distinctions, discriminatory distinctions, and and uh, and variant standings where some people have more rights than others. Chukachat Yelachem Klal HaTorah Hu. Right? That there should be a, right. This is the Klal of the Torah, not dealing with Torah. Yotzeifo. That the right, applies only, right? The laws of the government and the state um, obligate the citizens, and they have power, only democracies have legal force under Dina Machut Adina, right? And if they're democratic, without any distinction at all uh, among citizens. And so I think that this is a, uh, that I think that this principle is, uh, in, right, what the Meshach Chachma is talking about. And that, right, and what, you, what the argument is that 
labor law is just one instantiation of a fundamental Torah principle that human beings are not supposed to rule over each other. And therefore all, organiza right, all organizations that distribute power among human beings have to do so in a way that creates complete inequality. So I have to talk about a couple of things uh, to challenge this. Uh, one is, I, some person asked the question earlier, what about Yosef and Mitzrayim? So the answer is that Yosef's uh, subordination of the Egyptians to Paro is a chait. And I argue that that chait is fundamentally what the chait for which Yitzhak Mitzrayim is a kapara. I mean, sorry, Shiba Mitzrayim is a kapara, right? Pretty straightforwardly. Yosef has many, Yosef has, has many zuchuyot, uh, but the, but in the end, Bnei Israel don't get to leave Eretz Israel. They don't leave Eretz Mitzrayim until they take. Right, Yosef doesn't get to leave Eretz, Eretz, Eretz Mitzrayim until Bnei Israel redeem. Why is there such a connection between Yosef and and the redemption? And that Meshachacham actually says this in um, says draws that connection in the statement before the one we read because Yosef is responsible for Sheba Mitzrayim, uh, both pragmatically, as people have argued, Professor Moses Papa and others have argued that Yosef's economic policies lead to the need to scapegoat the Jews um, in order to prevent the popular revolt because the free people of Mitzrayim have now been enslaved. And I contend also morally that Yosef enslaves the Egyptians and that is right. And, and we take advantage of that, of, right? As opposed to protesting Yosef, no, you can't do this. And that's what generates the need for Yitzhak Mitzrayim. The other thing that has to be said is that in practice, right? There always is a need for government. The government always creates subordination. And there are economic reasons that it's in the interest of employees for employers to have some security for their remaining, because otherwise they won't train them. And uh, the United States Constitution certainly does not sustain a position of absolute equality for everyone in practice. And so, what I want, uh, what I want to argue is that we have here is an aspirational ideal in halacha. Um, it has to how it applies in practice. I don't we have to claim that the moment that the government of the United States get, right, fails to live up to the right to equal protection as I understand it, therefore doesn't apply, that I think is absurd. But the notion that the way that when we participate as Jews in a democratic process and our obligation is to push the United States to live up to that value, that I think emerges uh, emerges fairly is totally not in line with any of the pieces of the Rishonim and even in Chazal. I mean clearly Dinah Malchus Dina is invoked in a tkufa in, in Bovell, uh, in a period where nothing that resembled democracy even was happening, right? Rivarie. So, and, and the, the way the Rashba and others uh, coming from uh, Catalonia, uh, when the way he described it in the Gamar and Gitan, there was no uh, con concept of a, of, of Dina de Malchusa that aligned with democratic principles. There wasn't, there were no democratic principles at that time. It seems to be totally an invented shtickle tyra. So good. That's a great question, obviously. Uh, and here's how I want to begin thinking about it, because obviously he, he's aware of this also. Of course. And that was not quite true that democracy is, you know, you know democracy obviously existed in Athens. I understand. And, right. And our notion of divine right of kings is also not, ac not accurate at all in Europe. Right. Um, right. Europe, the king is largely uh, sustained only by popular uh, by right, if the king loses popular support, there's no there's a right of rebellion in right in most European in most European history. It's it's France that invents divine right of kings. But let's acknowledge the form of government in most European states in which Jews lived was not democratic, and nonetheless, it seems that we came to terms with that we came to terms with um, with uh, supporting the state as opposed to anarchy. And we also point out that the Rishonim who talk about the issue explicitly. Right, so people say maybe the Rashbam sounds like he's democratic, but the Ran is the Ran sounds like he's totalitarian. Here's what I would here's I think the broader uh, the broader answer. Every theory I think Rosh Weiss shows this um, in his in his essay Every theory in halacha of what justifies state power fundamentally is the consent of the governed. You have different theories about what generates the consent of the government of the governed. In some cases, you have what I would call a Hobbesian notion. That what generates the consent of the government is the belief that you have to transfer all power to an alt right to, to a Leviathan state in order to prevent people from killing each other. But Hobbes also argues that what generates the that what generates the authority of the Leviathan state is the consent of the governed. And you have right, then you have you know Rousseauian visions, right? Where uh, where the consent of the governed is granted by or Lockean visions where it's granted by a social contract um, that um, because think you can do things together and it's not just out of fear. But what I think Rabbi Weiss shows 
is that the fundamental theory of halacha is consent of the government. Now, what, what has happened is, uh, in large measure, this is because of the United States, is that we have come, right, everyone understood also that democracy was a better way of obtaining the consent of the governed than absolute monarchy. But before the United States, people thought that democracy was impractical. You couldn't actually have it. And therefore, if democracy is impossible, so, right, so then you go back to that. When the United States demonstrates that democracy is possible in England, right, let's not, let's not be so, so America-centric, right, when, as, the, as the Western world progresses in a way which demonstrates that democracy is practical, so since Halakha argues that the legitimacy of a state depends on the consent of the governed, so now, obviously, right, it turns out we were wrong, or maybe we were right in that era, right? This is a debate going on, right, because of the Arab Spring and other issues, right, that maybe democracy is only possible in certain kinds of, of conditions. And so maybe, right, maybe there still are parts of the world where democracy is impossible. But I think what Rabbi Weinberger and Rabbi Regensburg, and again, really, Rabbi Asher Weiss shows this, uh, shows this cool, he just doesn't have the rhetoric as powerfully in, in this way, is that halakha has a fundamental commitment to consent of the governed because failing consent of the governed, you have a slavery. And you try and get, just like in employment law, you try and get to as close to it as possible, but you have to account for economic realities. So in, right, so in politics, you get as close to it as possible, but you have to account for the political realities. Uh, again, I, I'm a little more comfortable with saying that there is, that Malchus itself has undergone some sort of his pachtus. Um, you know, clearly, again, we can argue whether the Athenian uh, ideal of democracy was ever uh, aspired to in any of the places that the, the Rishonim speak about Dina de Malchusa. Um, I, I don't believe it was, but uh, it, it's possible that you could say that since Bisman Azeh, there's a hakara of all governments that this is the ideal, and that becomes then anything else is called Hamsona de Malchus, right? You, you could say that. One, because ultimately, these principles are man-made of what the Dinam de Malchus should be. I mean, if, either you have the Torah's model of Dina de Malchusa, and then you, you have what the Torah allows, like in the Psukim and Shmuel, for a Melech to do, which is not democracy, right? It's not a, a democratic situation. And Dine Amelech, et cetera, and say, oh, that, if that's done outside of Torah in some other nation, we have to uh, accept it because of Dine de Malchusa. Or the word Malchusa doesn't really mean the way the Torah described it, but in terms of what Malchus has become to be, and it's, it's an event where we might be agreeing and some which, which might not, so I want to clarify. And one is obviously Dine Malchusa is just a term of art, right? Dina Malkusa doesn't actually mean obedience to the government. Dina Malkusa means the government has the right to, right, to enforce coinage. So, well, we, should, so we, should, we shouldn't be so mocked on the language because it's right, the language halakhically is much, much narrower right, than what we're talking about, which is the obligation, the obligation, the obligation to be a good citizen. Dina Malkusa never obligates being a good citizen at all. But whatever the halakhic term of that obligation is. Um, so the... Um, I don't think it's just human. That's what I'm trying to argue more than that. Um, so let's we talk about the content of Melech. So I, I have a different share, right? We can, can bring you back at some point that uh, right, except the, the Maratz Chayes and Rosh Israeli's notion that the power, right, that if you read the Torah, the Melech has no necessary power. The Melech can be a figurehead in, in the British constitutional sense. And the, the powers of the Melech, but, the, but the, the Melech can have as much power as the people grant to the king via social contract. And the Maratz Chayes locates the social contract as the Soviet Israeli in the moment where the people tell Yehoshua, Kalisha Shri Amret Picha Yumat, but there's no reason that we can't renegotiate that for the Melech HaMashiach. Uh, so I don't think the Torah in any way mandates, uh, right, mandates a uh, specific form of government. Well, right, the, the use of Malchus is a purely symbolic category. So the question is, of course, right, because of Yomali Marash El Malchus, you have to, right, it's almost always better to support the right, 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 but second, but but the yeah. the the incidents in the Vian that the Maratzchias bases this whole safer Ela de Vian on, at least the 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 beginning of that safer, um, uses um, the topics are based on what the evidence of people like Shol and Shmuel, I'm sorry, but Shol and David did right, and when David kills, you know the 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 messenger who tells him about uh, Shol's death, right. 
All of this is considered, he's killed him, Bedine Amelech, right? We, and, and we find Chazal talking about using the. Maraschayas believes that the Jewish people of the time elected a dictator the way they did in Athens in moments of crisis, right? It doesn't mean that he thinks it was a good idea to do that. He thinks that the king was not acting illegally when he did that because the king was acting within the powers granted by the right, by the people. So when when Shmuel when Shmuel uh, uh, gives the people uh, the coming attractions the the right. nightmare of the coming attractions of what a melech is, it's it's not divinely inspired that this is what a melech's koach is. Well, so that's a machlokah in the Gemara already, right? Whether whether Shmuel is, is whether Shmuel is warning them and if he's right. Uh, I think the simple shot is that Shmuel is telling him it doesn't matter what regulations you think you're making about the kings. Kings always, right? King, right? If you, unless you set up a system which actually holds the king accountable to law, the king will do whatever he wants. I think it's pushed shot, but there's a machlokas about that. And, you know, there is a position that says that that is actually the powers of the the powers of the king derisa, but that's not the pushed shot, not the way we paskin. I don't believe um, the um, whatever psak means on the hilchos of the mashicha. I think you know this issue was was. Addressed because when the when the powers of the state were set up, right? What should the powers of the state of Israel be? On the theory that of Cook says the powers of the Malchus, right? You know, the, which I think everyone basically accepted that the powers of the Malchus devolve on the people in the absence of the Malchus. And I think that the, the theory, the correct theory that came out was that you have an obligation that you give the government whatever powers you think are necessary for the government to carry its, out its purpose, and you shouldn't give it more. The only thing I'm adding is that you could argue, and this is what I think you were saying that. We are indifferent to the mode of government, and all that matters is effectiveness at preventing people from killing each other, making the trains run on time, right? Allowing people to walk into random cities without be, without being raped by the entire population, right? That's what a is for. I want to argue that that's not so. While it's true that we don't um, deny, as opposed as opposed to Rabbi Regensburg's extreme rhetoric, that a government has no force if it if it doesn't live up to equal protection. And he says we have a very strong values bias towards it. Now, I want to add one more thing that I think is very important, that we have treated Dina Machusadina in large measure as a way in which, right, what governments should we accept as Jews in their treatment of us? Now, that is totally different in the United States now and in all the Western world, where the question is not, right, how, right what, gov- what governments should we accept as legitimate but granted that we have the only choice we have is whether to accept them or not, as um, opposed um, to what government should we requires Jews be treated the same as everyone else. And there you have people who resist and say, no, we actually don't want to be integrated into that society. That's one kind of question. And the second is granted an integrated society. What is our responsibility? Right? What is our responsibility to that society? So I'm taking the position very, very strongly that our responsibility, once we have influence in a society, our responsibility, at least everyone else, we want to discriminate against ourselves, you know, because not to hate, right? I, I'm not going to, right, you know, I, I won't like it, but someone else might. But our responsibility to everyone else is to set up a legal system that embodies the values of the Torah, which, and I think I showed, is Kalibin Yisrael of Adim is not just about Jews. Kalibin Yisrael of Adim is about human beings. Torah is not just about Jews, it's about human beings. And we've had the luxury or suffered for, you know, for several millennia where we were not part of the conversation of what the government system should be. The only issue was how we should react to it. But now in two different contexts, in the state of Israel as a majority, and the United States as a fully um, enfranchised minority, we have the, right, we can ask the question of what should, right, what system should we contribute to building? And the answer is we should contribute to building a system that embodies Torah and understands that part of that is Kilibin Yisrael Vadim. Just, one last point. Um, you know, there's the famous uh, piece of the Nitziv in the Hamak Sheila, where he explains the reason why uh, the Melech has the power uh, to, you know, without Bezdin or <laughs> basically to squash any sort of uh, rebellion or any sort of merida by him, because he says that it has a din of Roydev. In other words, the, 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 the principle was that if we do allow everyone to protest and uh, to argue, to fulminate against what the laws are and what, the way the king wants to do it, we're not going to be able to have a functioning system. And therefore, the Melech kills him because if he keeps on talking, 
everybody is going to suffer and the system is going to break down. So on one hand, you know, Nitziv wrote this again, as we know, um, you know in the mid-19th century, but his, 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 his idea was that, that, that the Melech operates because otherwise you're going to have anarchy. Now, going back to what we were talking about today, it might not, it, it wouldn't be true because, right, because, you, 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 because now there is a system in place for protest, for issues to be raised, and for the government to still be nominal to function not only nominally but effectively, so you wouldn't necessarily have that halacha to be able to say, okay, the din melech is based on the din melech to basically obviate normal halachas because otherwise it's as you say, it's 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 he's every uh, every person who raises his voice is a roidif of the cow. Um, how would you respond to that? I mean. I mean, I think, again, I'm not, you know, I'm not, the Nassim, I have to know when he wrote that. It's more likely, right, early 20th century than, than mid-19th yeah, But he wrote it, he wrote it in the Schiltus, which was, which was printed in the, the latter part of the 19th century, 1860-something, 1870. Uh, that early, interesting. I mean, the Nassim, you know, the Nassim reads me double as a, you know, as an, as an anti-Bolshevik. Uh, I understand um, from, right. from the Hamik Dover and right. Parshish Noyev. So I so I understand I understand that there you know that it was a, a legitimate political position, uh, right? To see democracy as a threat of crazy people, and really they weren't seeing democracy in the notion of capitalist democracy it didn't occur, right? They were talking about democracy in the in the communist sense, right? That, that those those issues were inextricably linked to them, as many people thought, you know that that um, right that you know as opposed to having some kind of elite barrier. I think that was in a serious political judgment. Uh, I'm not. You know, rejecting the possibility that there aren't still areas where that's true, right? We have lessons that we learned from United States interventions to try and create democracy uh, in various places and figure out why they failed or not. Uh, all I'm saying is, you know, I might have my position, but those are political disputes. The question I'm uh, I'm asking, sorry, there's the off here. The question I'm asking is, or contending is, that granted the possibility of a, of a genuine democracy, uh, right? Does the Torah prefer that? And therefore, when the question is, right, when the question is, what form of government should we create, right, what should we engage in? The answer is, look, obviously, you shouldn't push for democracy if the result is going to be anarchy, everyone's going to die, right? That's a bad, right? That's a bad principle. But we, it's reasonable for us to say, look, you know what, we know a lot more about the practicality of democracy. That's what we say, but we know a lot more about the practicality of large scale democracy now than we did 200 years ago, or even 100 years ago. And therefore, there's really very little excuse, right? Because our push has to be towards, right, towards, towards equal protection, towards Khalid and Israel Abedim. And um, right, that should be, you know, what motivates us when we set up the system within whatever we think are the practical things we think. If we think the consequence of excessive democracy is massacres, is great. But if we think the consequence of, of, of democracy is that we lose some kind of privilege, then no, right? We're not allowed, right? Right, or, or even right, forget us, right? That group A will have privilege over group B, as opposed to being treated by you know, equally by the laws. I don't see how we could, right, or at least the argument I'm making, the, the chain of the tradition that I am setting out would argue that no, that's the violation of your obligation to Torah ethics. If you right, if you don't see unequal treatment of the laws as a problem. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.